Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies. My guest today is Daniel Martinez-Valle, CEO of Orbia, a community of companies driven to advance life around the world by focusing its business solutions on addressing six of the world's biggest challenges. After the completion of a year-long transformation to become a purpose-driven company, Orbia announced a major rebrand in September from its former brand name, Mexichem. With this transformation, Orbia now holds itself radically accountable to people, the planet, and profit. And to quote myself, which is kind of an awkward thing to do, but I'll do it anyway, from a Forbes piece that I wrote about Orbia's transformation, how could one of the world's largest makers of petrochemicals, an aspect of the business so prominent, contribute to positive global change? Can a company steeped in chemicals, mining, and manufacturing actually make the switch to putting new agriculture, water, and infrastructure businesses at the center of its mission? When Daniel joined the Orbia team as CEO almost two years ago, he was amazed by how the company was responding to global opportunities to address food, water, infrastructure, data, health, and transportation issues. He leveraged the business's already existing pursuits, combined it with his own personal passion to lead Orbia in making a much bigger impact in the world. Daniel Martinez-Valle, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you in studio. So this is a huge and very large and very complex transformation that you've been able to accomplish in, if I'm correct, in under two years. That's correct. Why now? I joined as CEO 19 months ago of Orbia. Back then it was called Mexichem. We quickly realized with a team that we had actually become much more than a Mexican company, much more than a chemicals company. Over the year, we acquired many companies around the world. We analyzed the asset base. We looked at the team and we actually realized that we were one of the few companies out there in the world that could actually leverage these assets and leverage a team to actually focus on solving a few of the most pressing global challenges. You mentioned sort of food security, water management, healthcare, well-being, making cities more livable and lovable. And this is exactly what we embarked upon as a transformation journey. We really believe that we can move the needle on people, profit, and planet by solving these issues. Did you know that coming in? Were you kind of pleasantly surprised? I mean, I know you joined as CEO and you hadn't been there that long. Was that one of the reasons why you joined or was it a pleasant surprise to know that so much work had already been done, it just hadn't been surfaced? I actually realized it on stage. I was giving a presentation with Roger Martin. He's a consultant and the former dean of the Toronto Business School He was asking me questions, and as we moved through the conversation, I quickly realized that we had truly sort of built a fantastic platform that was capable of helping solve these challenges. In a way, it became real when we started working on what we call our play-to-win strategy, that we actually could sort of allocate capital, allocate people all over the world in terms of solving all these challenges that are very relevant for our generation, will be relevant for our children's generation, and hopefully not for our grandchildren. Was it hard internally to get people aligned with that mission? Or do you think the company was ready? So I think the company was ready. The vision that the chairman has had over the last many years in terms of acquiring all these businesses all over the world, the vision that he's had in terms of making the last acquisition, which was the acquisition of Netafim, the Israeli-based company, which is the largest repurgation company out there in the world. I think his vision was instrumental in taking the company to where it was when I joined the CEO. 
and really sort of just putting the pieces together. I think the most important part of the initial phases of this transformation journey was to actually articulate our purpose. And when people participated very actively through surveys, workshops, meetings, thousands of employees were engaged in articulating our purpose. That's when the whole thing started to materialize as sort of a true transformation journey. Were there other brands or companies, especially B2B companies that you looked at as your North Star? Because I've had a lot of companies on them, mostly they're consumer companies. You're an ingredient brand. It's not completely obvious to a consumer, even sometimes to a business, that you're the secret behind the manufacturing of a certain product that then gives purpose and life to people around the world. So one, what were those other companies or points of inspiration that helped you put this plan, this operational plan and the storyline together? And how hard is it to communicate as an ingredient brand? We tried to find examples of B2B companies that were out there that were really purpose-driven, but we actually did not find any relevant examples. There's a lot of B2C examples that inspired us a lot. And there are a lot of B2B companies who kind of mask, they fake it a little bit. They do it through advertising. They say we're this and they're that, but it's not really true per se. I was going to say, I think one of the things that we found out in the process is a lot of companies are talking about purpose, but most of them are, as we say internally, just hanging the purpose statements on the walls, but not really embracing the purpose and becoming and transforming themselves as purpose-driven organizations. Again, we believe that purpose is a North Star and is really a good way of understanding why we exist as a company beyond profit. What would happen if a company ceases to exist? If Orbia doesn't exist five years from now, would that matter in India? Would that matter in Africa? Would that matter in the U.S.? And we really need everyone to understand that there's a reason beyond sort of profit in our day-to-day lives. So yeah, we did not find any relevant example in the B2B space. Another significant component of our transformation journey was to move from being a manufacturing company to becoming a customer-centric organization. And everything that we do, every single business model that we develop moving forward, every capital that we allocate has to have the human at the center of the discussion. So by the customer, you mean the consumer, the human being. Yeah, and a very good example is if we operate the single largest floor spar mine in the world, Many people would say, how can that be human-centered? Explain what fluorospar is. So fluorospar is a mineral. We own 20% of the world's assets. It's a rock. And it's composed basically, and this is an oversimplification, but by fluorine atoms. 20% is operated by us. 60% is in China, but China is for China given supply-demand dynamics. And then 20% of the remaining balance is out there in different parts of the world. So virtually, that means that we own one out of two fluorine atoms that go into many different applications. One of them could be associated to energy storage, lithium-ion batteries. Actually, yesterday, one of the Nobel Prizes was awarded to the guys that invented the lithium-ion batteries, which we're very happy to hear that. Other application is propelling gases for asthma inhalers. So again, how can a company that operates a floor spar mine, a rock mine, can actually solve a situation in which you have 100 million people today that can breathe easier because of asthma inhaler. As an asthmatic, I'm one of them. So thank you for that. So we're as customer-centric as touching 100 million lives every day. Right. And I imagine that you have dozens and dozens of examples like that. And if not, you're building those use cases now. We have and we'll never have enough. 
And that's the reason why we created our no impact mark, which is what other companies would call a logo. It's our first corporate living logo that we've seen out there in the market. And it's very transparent and we believe bold way of depicting the impact that we have on people, profit, and planet. So we're talking about six specific measures associated to how we operate a business, shows how we optimize our investments, how we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, how we reduce waste generated, how we increase women in management, and how we upskill our workforce. So it's this living, breathing logo. Those measures you've also gleaned from the UN Sustainability Goals. That's correct, yes. And it's beyond bold. I think it's quite courageous because in real time, you're showing how you're progressing against these things. That's right. And that becomes your mark. That's our mark. And we will see how we evolve our impact over time. And as we move along in terms of our transformation journey and our impact, it'll become more a circular grid rather than an amorphous kind of shape. Right. It is a little amorphous. So the idea is for it to be circular. If we were perfect individuals, it'll be a circle. There's no such thing as a perfect individual. We aspire to have as much impact as we can. We aspire to have a circular sort of impact mark. Honestly, that'll never happen. And if it happens, then we'll have to change the metrics. And how have investors reacted to this or responded to this? So they love the idea. Investors are increasingly aware of sustainability. Investors are increasingly aware of how companies have to play and need to play a role in terms of thinking of their impact in terms of the people that they serve, the people that work for them, and the people that partner with them, but also the impact that they have on the planet. So we're increasingly sort of talking and touching investors that really believe in this purpose. And we believe that there's going to be full alignment as we roll out this strategy in the next several months and years. Right. And I mean, with the whole movement towards ESG and the amount of investment publicly traded companies are making in that role and accountability, even from a shareholder standpoint, your timing is actually right. And I imagine that there are going to be other companies in your space that'll probably follow suit. Maybe not as authentically or as bravely, but they should probably follow. Yeah, it's interesting. We had several sort of launch events a few weeks ago when we unveiled our new identity. And we had one of the investors' meetings, one of the Wall Street analysts, asked a question. She was asking to me in particular, what do your controlling shareholders think about your purpose? What do they think about this journey? And we had the opportunity of having our founding chairman, our chairman emeritus, who's today 81 years old, in the room and I handed out the microphone to our founding chairman. And he answered in a very, very candid way. I believe, and I've always believed as a business person, that the most important thing is life. in life is to be happy. Why would this be different from the purpose of Forbia? If we advance life around the world, we'll make people happy. So this guy has been building, growing, and investing in businesses for the last 60 years very successfully being very purpose-driven without having any company or any media outlet talking about purpose. It wasn't a thing then. It wasn't a thing. And what does Orbia mean? How did you come up with that name? It's a combination of words. It's a combination of orb, which is a Latin word for sphere or world. And bia is the Greek personification of force. 
So in a way, the combination of the two words, which is something that we came up with, is the force of the world. And it does have to do with our purpose of advancing life around the world. If we use and we leverage the force of the world, we can actually advance life around the world and make people thrive and people live in a better environment. I think that's pretty cool. And I imagine that was, it probably wasn't a painful process, but it's a process. I think people underestimate how hard it is to one, come up with a new name and then to come up with the manifestation of that name, the visual mark, the impact mark, as you call it. That's not easy. Everybody thinks they're an expert in branding. So it was a fun process, to be honest. And it was what I call a we process. It was not a process in which a few people came up with a bunch of ideas in a sort of close room in New York City or in San Francisco. It was highly collaborative. It was very collaborative. We leveraged the knowledge and the experience of thousands of people in the organization. And we really wanted sort of to take the best of what had made the company so successful over the last couple of decades and take it into the future and adapt it a little bit and prove to be a successful process. What's your biggest fear with this transformation? I think not the biggest fear, but the biggest challenge is to be able to really become a company that is marked by its ambidexterity. And we need to be best in the world and be best for the world thanks to our capability and our ability to do both the optimizing for today, i.e. running the company as any company has to be run, sort of figuring out what we need to do with customers, invoicing, inventories, logistics, hiring, etc. But also at the same time, we have to be able to cultivate for tomorrow. We need to think about what does AI mean for the company moving forward? What does digital mean for our business models? How do we engage millennials? How do we think about how we can shape different business models and work with startups? That ambidexterity associated to being able to optimize for today and cultivate for tomorrow, I think it's a challenge that many companies face, if not all companies face. If we do that with a customer-centric vision and really being purpose-driven, I have no doubts that we will be a very successful company with a huge impact in terms of people, profit, and planet. So it really sounds like you're transforming into more of an agile enterprise where this purpose theme is literally baked into everything you do from R&D and innovation into your culture, into onboarding, how people think, how you develop new products, how you reinvent things. That takes time. That takes time. And we believe that life is about daily choices and life is about major choices that we may have to make once or twice a year. And that's why we believe that the purpose that we've articulated is so powerful because that'll be a guide and a North Star in every single choice that we have to make. Did you make hires internally to hold yourself accountable? I mean, you have a picture now, you've opened a window to the world to look into the KPIs associated with those six areas, which again is incredibly bold. What are you doing internally in terms of staffing to make sure that from an audit in a compliance standpoint, along lines of purpose, what are you doing there? Did you hire people? Is there a whole department? Is there a division? How do you monitor yourself? So we developed a series of KPIs that will be very relevant and are very relevant for sort of tracking the performance of the company on these three fronts. The impact mark is just a very succinct way of depicting how we measure our impact, but there's literally dozens, if not sort of hundreds of metrics that we need to follow that right. we're following day to day. Right. There's so many data points that ladder up to that. A lot of data points. I think one of the 
sort of major components of the transformation journey is associated to the fact that we now truly have a global team. We have a new CFO that came into the company. We have a new general counsel. We have a new CHRO. We have headquarters not only in Mexico City, but also in Boston, in Tel Aviv, and in Amsterdam. Right, so you're like quad domiciled. Or <laughs> I think we're truly a global company. I think right. companies that can today say that they only have headquarters in New York City or in San Francisco or in Tel Aviv are not really global. I really needed to hire the best people, irrespective of whether they were based in the U.S. or in Israel or in Europe. And you're probably making very tough decisions along the way. Every single day. I don't know if you want to share this, but my guess is you're investing tens of millions of dollars in this. If you think about it more holistically, not just in terms of costs associated with coming up with an impact mark, but there's structural changes that you're making in the company to make yourselves, to harden yourselves against this mission. We're investing as much money as we think we need to invest. But the most important thing is, A, we're measuring every single dollar that we invest and we make sure that we have the right return on investments from an OPEX perspective and from a CAPEX perspective, from a running the business as usual perspective and from a cultivating for tomorrow perspective. But the most important thing is that the investment that we're making is going to be minimal in the context of the impact that we expect to have over the next decade or so. And how are you structured? Do you have business units? We have five business units. One of them is dedicated to precision agriculture. We have a business unit that is dedicated to connecting cities and connecting people through Datacom, Cultura Line. A third business unit is associated to making cities and homes and buildings more livable and lovable, which is called Wavin. Our fourth business unit is our floor business unit, which we just rebranded as Cora, and we have a vinyls business, which is the largest specialty PVC resin company in the world and the fifth largest general PVC resin company in the world. The leaders of those businesses, have you recast their reviews against this mission as well? Are they also incented to do well by doing good in the same way as the overall enterprise, or is that something that you're working towards? They are. They definitely are fully aligned to our purpose. And actually, that's a good question because we have five business groups that I just described and we have Orbia as sort of the head or the sort of umbrella for all these businesses. We try to and we like to describe ourselves as a community of companies, not as a conglomerate or as a network. And there's an explanation why we call ourselves a community of companies. But at the end of the day, every single one of our business groups have a nested purpose. Let me give you one example. In the case of Netafim, our drip irrigation company based in Israel, they're dedicated to food security and managing water, which is one of the most scarce resources in the world. And as we've discussed, Orbia is dedicated to delivering on the promise to advance life around the world. And Netafim has a purpose which is associated to growing more with less. So when you have a nested purpose... We can advance life around the world from an Orbia perspective by growing more with less, thanks to the stuff that Netafim does. That's interesting. What's your background? Is it technical? Is it marketing? Is it operational? None of the above? 
So I'm an economist by training. I actually did not know that. Yeah, I did work as an economist when I started my professional career working at the Ministry of Finance back in the tequila crisis days in 1994-1995. Tequila crisis? Those are two terrible words for me to hear, just have to say. <laughs> I was going to say it's an oxymoron, but uh, <laughs> it was a major devaluation and financial crisis that we had in Mexico back in 1994. We had a financial meltdown that was a uh, Biggest crisis in 60 years for the country, and I was fortunate enough to work with the Minister of Finance back then, and I was engaged in the negotiations with the U.S. Treasury and the International Monetary Fund, which was a very interesting opportunity for a 23-year-old who had just been trained as an economist. And then later, I had a stint at the entrepreneurial activities, starting a company in Spain. I worked briefly for J.P. Morgan on Wall Street. I worked as a consultant for a very brief period of my life at McKinsey in Europe. I then worked for Cisco doing strategy, worldwide strategy and planning. And 10 years ago, I joined Calus, which is a holding company of Mexican today, Orbia. Oh, okay. So it's not like you're new to Orbia per se. No. This is really your 12th year then? It's my 12th year as part of a sort of group of companies that includes Orbia. And you did your schooling in Mexico? I did my schooling in Mexico and in the West Coast. On the West Coast? Yeah. Okay. So 22,000 employees. 22,000 employees worldwide, yeah. And 110 countries you're operating in. We sell in 110 countries plus, and we manufacture in 41 countries. Okay. Culturally, you said you hired a new CHRO? Correct. And for those listeners, that's Human Resources Officer. Not everybody knows the acronyms, so it's always worth reminding folks. They have a big job ahead of them. And I imagine that there's a large proportion or percentage of those employees who are millennials. And by definition, most millennials are very purpose-driven and they do care more than other generations. What's the plan there to bring them on board and get them to be part of this? Or is it not that difficult because so human-centered, it should be a no-brainer? I mean, it's definitely going to be a challenge as we move along. And I think the best way in which we can continue engaging not only millennials, but any generation in our employee base is to be really, really effective in moving the needle and the stuff that we try to do. When people hear stories about what we've done in places like India and how we changed the lives of thousands and hundreds of thousands of farmers, and if people understand how we're changing the lives of millions of people through sort of our floor business group, and every single story that we put out there to our employees, to our customers, to our partners, that's a way in which people can connect. And at the end of the day, again, going back to our impact market, when they see how we're evolving in terms of the impact that we have in terms of people, profit, and planet, they can actually connect their work and their day-to-day to a concept of transcending. They can actually figure out the stuff that they do day-to-day can actually impact the lives of millions of people. Right, it's far more tangible than it was before. It's far more tangible. And we fundamentally believe that human beings are not formed by molecules or cells. We believe that human beings and people are formed by stories. And we believe in the power of storytelling. And by telling stories about lives that we can change and that we've been able to change all over the world, we can make people understand that they're actually transcending and that they're having an impact and they're leaving a very relevant legacy in the way they perform in their company. 
And it's a very diverse set of employees, not just in language and in culture, but also in terms of role, people who are literally in factories and manufacturing. And then you've got folks who are selling and folks who are dealing with distributors and suppliers and things like that and directly with customers. That can be challenging too. Everybody has a different way of wanting to be communicated with and to. One of our other passions is music and classical music in particular. So we always use the analogy of an orchestra. And there's a relevance to being a violinist and there's a relevance to being a pianist. And every single instrument has a major role and every single instrument makes sense. When you sort of perform in an orchestra, it doesn't matter what you do. You matter in what you do. And you're the conductor. I'm not the conductor. Well, you're a very humble conductor. (laughs) And I'd love to be playing an instrument too. Do you play an instrument? I'm learning how to play the piano and I play the flute. I was actually tortured as a young child to play the violin. Are you familiar with the Suzuki method? Yes, I am. So you have to memorize everything. So I didn't learn how to read notes until later. I was like eight or nine by the time I learned how to read notes. And I quit at 14. Long story though, it's a very boring story. And my parents always said, you're really going to regret this. I'm like, sure I am. (laughs) I totally regret quitting. Biggest mistake I made in my life. Well, there's many mistakes I made. That was one of the biggest ones. I always tricked my flute professor. I never learned how to read the notes. And I'm struggling with that, with a piano. I learned how to memorize all the pieces. Interesting. Your own Suzuki method, but for the flute. Yeah. There's a connection between playing the piano and math as well. Absolutely. I don't know if you've felt that yourself as you're learning. Absolutely. Especially with Bach. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I bet. Well, Daniel, it's lovely having you on. I really appreciate you telling these stories. What's the best way for people to follow Orbia and its progress and the impact, Mark? I know it's not going to change significantly from day to day per se, but it will over time, quarter to quarter and year to year. So what's the best way for folks to follow your progress? So as part of this transformation journey, we're now very, very active on social media. Anyone can follow, obviously, our webpage. Very active on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. So any of these social media are a good way to follow. That's great. Thanks again. Thank you, Aaron. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast, and learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Thank you.